peace be upon you. So one of the most conniving tricks that the devil has pulled on the Muslim masses is convincing them that some of the verses of the Quran have been abrogated. For those who are not familiar with this term, what this means is they believe that certain verses of the Quran no longer apply, that they were overwritten by other verses in the Quran, and in some instances, that the Hadith overwrite the verses of God in the Quran. The two verses that individuals point to in order to try to justify this understanding of abrogation are the following. In Surah 2 verse 106, it reads, When we abrogate any ayah or cause it to be forgotten, we bring one better or equal to it. Do you not recognize the fact that God is omnipotent? So it's this word ayah where they translate as a verse, as in a single verse of the Quran. So they read it as when we abrogate a verse or cause it to be forgotten, we bring one better or equal to it. In the other verse is Surah 16, verse 101. It reads, When we substitute one ayah in place of another, and God is fully aware of what he reveals, they say you made this up. Indeed, most of them do not know. This understanding for translating the word ayah in the singular form as a verse uh, is wrong on two grounds. First, linguistically, this does not correspond with how the word is used throughout the entire Quran. Uh, secondly, this concept contradicts the very nature of the Quran. So let's look at these two issues and try to reconcile them. The core of the mistranslation in this verse has to do again with the word ayah in the singular form. In modern Arabic, when we heard the term ayah or ayat, uh, we naturally think of a verse of the Quran or verses of the Quran. But in the Quran, the term ayah consistently means either a miracle, a revelation, or the entire Quran. And this is consistently the case when it occurs in the singular form. Nowhere in the Quran do you see ayah in reference to a single verse of the Quran. This singular form occurs 84 times in the Quran, and if you look, every single occurrence of this is always in reference to a sign, a miracle, or the entire Quran. And one of the clearest examples of this is Surah 10, verse 20. It reads, they say, how come no ayah came down to him from his Lord? Say, the future belongs to God, so wait and I'm waiting along with you. Now, if we translate ayah as a verse, this uh, verse would make no sense because obviously the prophet received verses from God. So if someone claimed that he didn't receive any verses, uh, it's a contradictory statement because he did receive verses. What the prophet did not receive was a sign or a miracle. Uh, this is clear from this verse and other places in the Quran that unlike the prophets of the past, say Moses, who uh, God gave specific miracles, or Jesus, Muhammad's only miracle was this Quran. Now you can go and consult the Hadith about the supposed miracles of Muhammad, but as far as the Quran is concerned, Muhammad did not receive a physical miracle. And God is specifically telling him, it says, they say, how come no miracle came down to him from his Lord? Say, the future belongs to God, so wait, and I'm waiting along with you. You know, obviously, again, Muhammad was given verses of the Quran, but he was not given a physical miracle. And this shows that this word ayah in the singular form, again, it's used 84 times in the Quran, is always in reference to a sign, a miracle, or the entire Quran, and never in reference to a single verse of the Quran, like it's used in uh, modern Arabic. The second problem with this understanding of thinking that God is uh, abrogating verses of the Quran, meaning that there's verses he sent down that are overwritten by other verses that are to be discarded, is that this actually breaks the very message within the Quran. 
The Quran condemns individuals who accept the Quran only partially. God literally calls these people who do this dividers. And it reads, we will deal with the dividers. They accept the Quran only partially. In the literal Arabic, it says in different parts. Now, if you have the Quran in parts where you say, okay, these parts we accept, these ones we don't because they're abrogated, these individuals are literally falling into this condemnation that God is calling out in this book. Additionally, God tells us that the Quran is complete, it's fully detailed, and that nothing shall change or abrogate his words. And it's interesting that 16101 uses the exact same terminology as is used in Surah 16, verse 115. So starting from 114, it reads, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate, change his words. He is the hearer, the omniscient. So if we believe that certain verses of the Quran no longer apply, that they've been abrogated, they need to be discarded, we're literally doing the very thing that God is warning us about. God warns us that on the day of judgment, the disbeliever is going to make the following claim. It's going to read, Alas, woe to me, I wish I did not take that person as a friend. He has misled me away from the message after it came to me. Indeed, the devil lets down his human victims. And this is going to be the messenger's response on the day of judgment. It reads, The messenger said, My Lord, my people have deserted this Quran. The Quran is not a single verse. It's a compilation of 6,346 verses. If we reject one verse from the Quran, then in essence we're rejecting the entire book. Notice the, the messenger does not say, my people have deserted a portion of the Quran. He's saying he, they deserted the entire thing. That it's one solid revelation. If all of a sudden we're going to say certain verses are to be abrogated, that they don't apply, that we are not to follow, then in essence we're rejecting this book. So if we look at the verses that they claim have been abrogated, depending on which school of thought you go towards, they have anywhere between 21 verses that they claim are abrogated to as high as 248 verses of the Quran that they claim have been abrogated. Additionally, some scholars make the, have the audacity to say that the entire Quran, uh, any verse of it, could potentially be abrogated uh, because there might be a hadith that overrides it. If you look at the supposed 21 verses, this is what the majority school of thought believe that have been abrogated, you realize that such a claim is absurd. So I went through all of these supposed 21 abrogated verses and their corresponding verses that they've been abrogated from. And what you realize is that it's not that one verse overrides the other, that you know one verse has been uh, nullified. What it really comes down to is that certain verses are going to expand on the understanding of other verses or that they're dealing with different contexts that these individuals have just failed to understand. And I just want to look at a couple of these examples rather than going through all 21 on this podcast. But for instance, so they say that uh, Surah 8 verse 65 has been abrogated by Surah 8 verse 66. So 865 reads, O you prophet, you shall exhort the believers to fight. If there are 20 of you who are steadfast, they can defeat 200, and 100 of you can defeat 1,000 of those who disbelieved. That is because they are people who do not understand.
So in this verse, it's claiming that 20 believers can defeat 200 and 100 believers can defeat 1,000. So it's a factor of 10. Now, what does 866 read? 866 reads, now that uh, many new people have joined you, God has made it easier for you, for he knows that you are not as strong as you used to be. Henceforth, a hundred steadfast believers can defeat two hundred, and a thousand of you can defeat two thousand by God's leave. God is with those who steadfastly persevere. It is a wrong understanding to think that 866 abrogates 865. 866 is giving us, again, more details and is also teaching us a lesson. So notice in the early onset in 865 that those believers can defeat basically a factor of 10, meaning you get 20 believers, they can defeat 200 disbelievers. Now that the numbers have increased, the factor is that of 2. So 100 believers can defeat 200 believers. The takeaway from this is twofold. One, it's that the fact that, yes, as they gotten uh, older, not only have they become physically weaker, but if you consider that the faith of the individuals, the aggregate per capita faith, declines as the number of believers increases. Why is that? It's because when you're the first vanguards of a new religion who embrace the religion, your faith has to be through the roof because you don't have the support of all the other people who claim the faith. But as the number of believers increases, the next marginal believer becomes easier to accept the message because they have this entire following that they're falling into. And this is always the case. When you have a new movement, the first people to join the movement are always the most devout because they're doing it without the, the social pressure to basically get on board. They actually have the opposite effect. Most people are telling them, don't do it. But once you have throngs of people who embrace a movement, then for each additional member to join, the friction has been reduced. You actually have the reverse happen, where it's more likely that you want to join the movement than be one who's outcast from the movement. And this is what these verses are telling us. And again, it's not that one verse abrogates the other. It's that there's a lesson here for us to learn from. If we're going to say, look, we're no longer going to apply 865, we're only going to read 866, we're going to miss this valuable lesson. And now let's look at another example. So in this example, they say that 991 uh, abrogates Surah 9 verse 41. So let's read 941 first. It says, You shall readily mobilize light or heavy and strive with your money and your lives in the cause of God. This is better for you if you only know. So in this verse, God is advocating that the believers mobilize in the cause of God. Now, if we read 991, it says, Not to be blamed are those who are weak or ill or do not find anything to offer, so long as they remain devoted to God and His messenger. The righteous among them shall not be blamed. God is forgiver, most merciful. Again, 991 does not abrogate 941. All 991 does is it gives an extra stipulation as far as who are uh, exempted from this commandment in 941. So 941 is a requirement for all who were able to mobilize in the cause of God, while 991 is providing permission for certain people who are exempt from this command. And if you took 941 out, you would only have a portion of the ruling. And this is the whole concept. You need the entire Quran to be able to apply it. You can't apply the Quran based on one single verse alone. And regarding the early vanguards who received this Quran, God gave it to them exactly when they needed it. Meaning when these problems, these circumstances came up, the revelation was provided to provide ease and resolution for these uh, disputes.
But today we have the entire Quran. If we're going to say that some verses no longer apply, we're not going to read them, they've been abrogated, then in essence we're not taking this Quran as a whole. Now what's fascinating is in this camp that believes that there's you know over 248 verses that have been abrogated, what you realize is that nearly a hundred of these verses they claim have been abrogated by Surah 9 verse 5, which is known as the verse of the sword. And basically what they've done is any verse in the Quran where it talks about being patient, being kind, responding in the best possible response, to being tolerant, they say all these have been abrogated by the verse of the sword. And Surah 9 verse 5 reads, Once the sacred months are past and they refuse to make peace, you may kill the idol worshippers when you encounter them, punish them, and resist every move they make. If they repent and observe the contact per salat and give the obligatory charity zakat, you shall let them go. God is forgiver, most merciful. Tyrannical individuals love to cite this verse as superseding any verse of the Quran that advocates, again, justice, tolerance, compassion, the non-aggression principle. The irony is that if we read this verse in context, starting from verse 1, we see that this is not an open invitation to go and attack whoever you want, like the tyrannical uh, individuals who make that claim are hoping it is. And it's very obvious that when you read the context, that this is regarding people who are at active war with one another and who have violated their peace treaty. This does not, again, constitute you know, a co-worker or a politician or someone who's not actively at war with you. It reads in Surah 9 verse 1, it says, An ultimatum is here issued from God and his messenger to the idol worshippers who enter into a treaty with you. Therefore, roam the earth freely for four months and know that you cannot escape God and God humiliates the disbelievers. A proclamation is here and issued from God and his messenger to all the people on the great day of pilgrimage, that God has disowned the idol worshippers and so did his messenger. Thus, if you repent, it would be better for you. But if you turn away, then know that you can never escape from God. Promise those who disbelieve a painful retribution. If the idol worshippers sign a peace treaty with you, do not violate it, nor band together with others against you. You shall fulfill your treaty with them until the expiration date. God loves the righteous. So God is telling us that, look, if there's a peace treaty in place, we have to honor the peace treaty. And it continues, 9.5, once the sacred months are passed and they refuse to make peace, you may kill the idol worshippers when you encounter them, punish them, and resist every move they make. If they repent and observe the contact prayer and give the obligatory charity zakat, you shall let them go. God is forgiver, most merciful. Now the following verse. If one of the idol worshippers sought safe passage with you, you shall grant him safe passage so that he can hear the word of God. Then send them back to his place of security. That is because they are people who do not know. How can the idol worshippers demand any pledge from God and from his messenger? Exempted are those who have signed a peace treaty with you. At the sacred masjid, if they honor and uphold such a treaty, you shall uphold it as well. God loves the righteous. So consistently, you know, these verses are talking about two parties who are at active war with one another, and they have violated their peace treaty. And this is more clearly uh, articulated in the following verse, Surah 9, verse 12, just a few verses ahead. It says, if they violate their oath after pledging to keep their covenants and attack your religion, you may fight the leaders of paganism. You're no longer bound by your covenant with them that they may refrain. Would you not fight people who violated their treaties, tried to banish the messenger, and they are the ones who started the war in the first place? 
Are you afraid of them? God is the one you're supposed to fear if you are believers. So again, Surah 9 verse 5 is not an abrogation of all the verses that talk about being just, to being kind, to being tolerant, to being compassionate. The Quran has a very strict non-aggression principle, meaning we are never allowed to be the aggressors unless we're aggressed upon. This is adamantly advocated throughout the Quran. So if someone's interpretation is that, no, this allows us to be the aggressors, then they're obviously disregarding the Quran. And that's the reason that the traditionalists have adopted this concept of abrogation. It's because their understanding of the Quran in conjunction with the Hadith causes numerous contradictions. So to reconcile, they simply say that these verses have been abrogated when a contradiction is formed. Again, this contradicts the very foundation of the Quran. In Surah 4 verse 82, it says, Why do they not study the Quran carefully? If it were from other than God, they would have found in it numerous contradictions. So, for instance, in the Quran, in 2.256, says there's no compulsion in religion. In Surah 2, verse 190 through 193, it says oppression is worse than murder. That aggression is permitted only against the aggressors, and God does not love the aggressors. So, how do people get around this? They simply say these verses have been abrogated, and now we follow the verse of the sword, giving them authority to go and attack and do all these heinous acts, and avoid the clear contradiction they form. If one accepts the concept of abrogation within the Quran, that some verses abrogate other verses, then that in itself is a contradiction in the Quran. Such an understanding is basically conceding and saying that they believe that there's contradictions in the Quran, that some verses contradict other verses in the Quran, and therefore, because of that, some verses need to be negated. This is the fundamentally wrong way of understanding the Quran. A better approach in understanding and studying the Quran is that we consider the Quran as a complete book, such that we do not take a single verse of the Quran in isolation, but consider the verse in conjunction with all the other verses of the Quran. Then, if we come up with an understanding, we have to ask ourselves, does this understanding cause a contradiction in any of the verses of the Quran? If the answer is yes, then it means that our understanding is wrong or it needs to be refined. But if we simply disregard the verses that are not convenient, that form this contradiction by claiming that they're simply abrogated, then in essence, we're not accepting when God tells us that this is a complete book. In contract theory, a contract is considered complete if the agreement could specify every possible future state of the world, as well as the appropriate actions that should be taken into effect under any of these possible future outcomes. In those situations, we say that the contract is complete because everything is covered. This means that every scenario, edge case, is accounted for in advance. This is a theoretical concept, this concept of a complete contract, a complete book. The reason they say that this is theoretical is because human beings are incapable of ever creating a contract that's genuinely complete. There's always going to be edge cases, unforeseen events that they haven't accounted for. This is the reason that companies are constantly updating their terms of service. Because each time a new scenario arises where there's a new lawsuit, a new edge case, they have to update their language to account for this scenario. This is not the case of the Quran. When God calls the Quran complete, 
he is letting us know that this book covers all scenarios, all edge cases for every single human being on this planet from now till the end of the world. That everything we need for our salvation is encompassed inside this book. That we don't need any other source of law. That our only source of law is this one book. In Surah 16 verse 89, it says the day will come when we will raise from every community a witness from among them and bring you as a witness of these people. We have revealed to you this book to provide explanations for everything and guidance and mercy and good news for the submitters. In Surah 12 verse 111, it reads, In their history there is a lesson for those who possess intelligence. This is not fabricated hadith. This Quran confirms all previous scriptures, provides the details of everything, and is a beacon and a mercy for those who believe. In Surah 18 verse 54 it reads, We have cited in this Quran every kind of example, but the human being is the most argumentative creature. Meaning that God is telling us that this Quran has all our examples, everything we need when it has to do with our salvation our uh, code of law when it has to do with our religion is all encompassed in these verses of the Quran that the human being argues with that. And the natural argument is, if the Quran is complete, where can I find the details of such and such? And basically, people are trying to claim that the Quran is not complete. This is their argument. Now, what's fascinating is God has a response for this. In Surah 25, verse 33, it says, Whatever argument they come up with, we provide you with the truth and the best understanding. And the word here for understanding is tafsir. That God in the Quran provides us the best tafsir. That if we want to understand the words of God in the Quran, we simply read the Quran. We understand the Quran. We compare and contrast verses of the Quran to try to narrow down towards the truth, towards the right understanding. Individuals who are ultimately challenging God's promise in the Quran that it's complete, it's fully detailed, by asking where are the details for such and such uh, items, that there's actually three reasons to why something isn't explicitly mentioned in the Quran. The first reason that it's not pertinent to our salvation. God gives us this example in Surah 18 of the Quran regarding the sleepers of the cave. It reads, some would say there were three, their dog being the fourth, while others would say five and six being their dog. As they guessed, others said seven and the eighth was their dog. Say, my Lord is the best knower of their number. Only a few knew the correct number. Therefore, do not argue with them. Just go along with them. You need not consult anyone about this. This verse is telling us that if God didn't specify something explicitly, it's not pertinent for us to know. It doesn't matter, you know, if there was five and six being the dog or six and seventh was their uh, dog, that these numbers aren't pertinent to the, the, the lessons to be taken away from this uh, narrative. You know, and you see a lot of this in the Quran where it intentionally omits certain information. You know, for instance, the name of Adam's two sons, you know, in Surah 5 verse 26, it describes this event uh, and it doesn't give their names. But yeah, you can go and look at the Bible and see what their names are. The, the takeaway from this is if God didn't specify in the Quran, that again, it's not necessary for our salvation. The second reason if something is not explicitly mentioned in the Quran is that it's there, but we just need to be patient before God reveals it to us. And we have this verse in the Quran, Surah 5, verse 101. It says, O you who believe, do not ask about matters which, if revealed to you prematurely, would hurt you. If you ask about them in the light of the Quran, they will become obvious to you. God has deliberately overlooked them. God is forgiver, clement. Others before you have asked the same questions, then became disbelievers therein. 
So God is telling us that there's certain information that it's not explicit in the Quran, and he intentionally overlooked them. And he's saying that if you read this in light of the Quran, the reasons behind this will become obvious to you. But people who get fixated on why certain details are not in the Quran, this becomes their carve-out to go and look for sources of law outside of this Quran. God tells us that as humans, we will move from stage to stage, and we have to trust in God's system that when we are ready, He will make certain matters obvious to us, and we have to be patient. In Surah 20, verse 114, it reads, Most exalted is God, the only true King. Do not rush into uttering the Quran before it is revealed to you, and say, My Lord, increase my knowledge. So these are two of the reasons. One is because, again, it's not pertinent for our salvation. Reason number two is because we need to be patient. God has deliberately overlooked them for a specific reason. And if we're patient, God will reveal to us those reasons. And the third reason is because it's obvious. Obviously, if this book had to cover every single definition, every single action, and explain to us as if you know we have no preconceived notions of what these words are, what these meanings are, then this book would be volumes and volumes long. God knows what we're capable of. God knows what we know. God knows what we have access to. So for instance, you know, the Quran doesn't need to tell us how to wash. It simply says wash. It doesn't need to tell us how to walk. We know when it says to walk what this means. It doesn't need to break down that walking is when you put one foot in front of the other on two legs. It doesn't need to explain, say, for instance, what grapes are, what pomegranates are, you know, what an elephant is. These are all understood notions within the Quran that if God needed to explain all this, it would only be in the context if we didn't know what these words were. And we have this in the Quran. God poses the question, says, do you know what Sajin is? And then it gives us an answer. It says, do you know what Eliyin is? And it gives us an answer. It says, do you know what Altarik is? And it gives us an answer. But when it comes to these other matters, God doesn't need to ask us, do you know what this is? Because he knows what we know. He doesn't need to clarify things that are obvious to us. And this is the case when it comes to the uh, ritual aspects of the religion. When you're dealing with the Salat, the contact prayer, the Zakat, the obligatory charity, Siam, fasting, Hajj, pilgrimage, God did not need to explain these concepts to us or to the Prophet because these have been around since the time of Abraham. All these practices originate back to Abraham. In Surah 16, verse 123, it says that Muhammad was commanded to follow Milata Ibrahim, the religion of Abraham. All these ritual practices we have, they all date back to Abraham. So for instance, in Surah 2 verse 3, when God is describing the believers as those who observe the contact prayer Salat, He didn't need to explain what the contact prayer Salat was, because these practices were known. For instance, take something like Siam fasting. It's perfectly clear from the following verse that this practice has been around way before that the people were observing it, even before the revelation came. So in Surah 2 verse 183, it says, O you who believe, fasting is decreed for you, as it was decreed for those before you, that you may attain salvation. So this verse is being clear that the concept of Siam fasting existed way before the Quran, because again, all these practices date back to Abraham. In Surah 2 verse 187, it says, Permitted for you is sexual intercourse with your wives during the nights of fasting. They are keepers of your secrets and you are keepers of their secrets. God knew you used to betray your souls. He has redeemed you and has pardoned you. Henceforth, you may have intercourse with them, seeking what God has permitted for you. So here again, it's showing that the people were observing Ramadan, Siam fasting, prior to this revelation. 
that during this time that they were having intercourse with their wives when this was not permissible, but God is sending a verse saying that now it's okay to do. So again, this shows that these practices predate the Quran, that the purpose of the Quran is to supersede, to uh, uh, eliminate any disputes and to purify these practices for us. You know, take the example of zakat. Right now, if you talk to a traditionalist, they believe you pay zakat once a year. But in Surah 6, verse 141, it's very clear that zakat is to be paid on the day of harvest. Today, we don't harvest bananas and apples and oranges, right? We harvest paychecks. I mean, the day we get money in our pocket, we need to pay 2.5% because this is the percentage that God has established for Abraham that was passed down to us today. But the irony is, if you accept other sources beside the Quran, you're going to be pulled in every which way and direction. For instance, take the Salat. There is no Hadith that says how to do the Salat from start to finish. There's numerous Hadith that contradict how you're supposed to do the Salat. And this creates contradictory sources that creates sects and divisions within the religion. The beauty of the Quran is that it's one consistent source. In Surah 39 verse 23, it says, God has revealed here in the best Hadith, a book that is consistent and points out both ways to heaven and hell. The skins of those who reverence their Lord cringe therefrom. Then their skins and their hearts are softened up for God's message. Such is God's guidance, he bestows it upon whomever he wills. As for those sent astray by God, nothing can guide them. When God gives us a consistent scripture, it means there are no contradictions. That any questions we have, we basically assess it against these 6,346 verses. If a contradiction is formed, it is our duty to either abandon that understanding or to refine it in order to eliminate that contradiction. But when you allow for contradictory sources, then in essence you have disputing partners that you have to deal with. And it, what ends up happening is if you accept other sources of religious law beside that of the Quran, then at that moment you're going to have disputes. Because if you accept one, it means you have to reject others. And most importantly, it means that you reject the words of God in the Quran when he tells us repeatedly that the Quran is complete, it's fully detailed, and it should be our only source of religious law. In Surah 39, verse 29, it reads, God cites the example of a man who deals with disputing partners. This is the analogy of Hadith compared to a man who deals with only one consistent source. This is that of the Quran. Are they the same? Praise be to God, most of them do not know. Praise God, by following the Quran alone, we have one consistent source. We have one unified source of law that we, we can benchmark our interpretations and our understandings against. The second you open up the door to additional sources of law beside that of the Quran, when it comes to religious matters, then all of a sudden you have disputing factions. In Hadith sciences, there are two primary factors that individuals use to validate the strength and authenticity of any given hadith. The first is the ranking of authenticity, with the highest ranking being that of sahih, meaning that it's authentic, it's approved. The second is the concept of mutawatir. Mutawatir means mass transmission, means there's so many narrations of this hadith that they say that, look, it's impossible that this hadith is a fabrication. If the hadith is considered sahih, this means that the chain of narration is trustworthy, the people are of sound mind, and there's no broken uh, relationships amongst that change. If it's mutawatir, then this means that there are multiple chains who all claim the same narration, except there's a fundamental paradox in this. 
that as the number of narrations increases, then the contradictions between the narrations proportionally increases. And this causes major issues because no one knows then definitively what was exactly stated. Because if each narration, in essence, is creating this uh, stronghold to validate it, but they're each slightly different, there's different variations of what's being said, how do you know which one is the correct narration? Because inevitably, if you accept one narration, you have to reject the other narrations. And this is what makes the Quran unique. That despite the fact of so many different memorizers, so many different individuals who've written the Quran, who've memorized the Quran, that they're all consistent. We don't have a thousand different Qurans. We have one Quran. And on top of that, we have mechanisms that safeguard this, that God willing in future episodes, we can look at how God preserved this Quran. That one verse can't be out of place. One surah can't be out of place. One letter can't be out of place. But when it comes to Hadith outside of the Quran, the same is not true. As the number of narrators of any one Hadith increases, ironically, the number of variations also proportionally increases such that each narration will slightly vary with one another. This is not a ding against the individuals, their integrity. This is just a limitation because A, God did not preserve the Hadith, and B, this is just human fallibility. Consider some of the biggest events that occur today, that despite the numerous witnesses, tons of video recordings, audio recording, endless amounts of metadata that can be pulled, there's still disputes to what exactly took place, what the motivations were, what the entire context was. You know, how many times do we go on Twitter, do we go listen to the news, and you'll see multiple narrations about what took place, and you think this is today. You know, most of this hadith have been uh, canonized 200 years after the Prophet's death. What is the likeliness that these have not missed any of the, the context, some of the phrasing? For instance, take this consideration. You go to a college lecture, and the professor is giving a lecture, and then there's a hundred students all taking notes. What's the likeliness that all these students are going to write down exactly what the, uh, the professor said without any variation? You can guarantee that it's zero that every single individual is going to have a slight different take or an emphasis as far as what it was exactly that the professor said. Now, in most day-to-day, -day, that's not a big deal. But when you're dealing with matters of law, one word difference, one pause, one comma can distinguish one ruling from another. And that's why we don't take this as a light matter. For instance, I was listening to a uh, podcast from 99% Invisible regarding a lawsuit between an HOA and a homeowner where the language in the contract said that the homes need to be brown, tan, or local earth tones. And thousands and thousands of dollars and multiple and multiple lawsuits were being gone back and forth over what this phrase even meant. Now imagine there was the possibility that this phrase was open in the sense that it could have been this phrase or it could have been numerous other phrases. How much in disarray would it be to try to render a judgment? So imagine someone else says, oh, no, this, the contract didn't say that because we have a narration where someone else says that the, uh, it doesn't say that it has to be brown, tan, or local earth tones. It actually is supposed to say brown, tan, or forest colors. Now, which one do you take? Do you take lo the local earth tones or do you take forest colors? And you have to go and check who's more trustworthy, who has a better reputation. But at the end of the day, you don't know. 
And you're, you're inevitably in this uh, paradox where you have to choose one and reject another. Let's say someone else has a narration. They say, oh no, it doesn't say brown, tan, or uh, earth tones. It says brown, orange, or gray. So once you have this conflicting information regarding source of law, then what that means is the law is utterly meaningless. Because the whole function of law is that it's something that we can benchmark against. But if that benchmark is constantly in flux because people are coming with new narrations, new understandings, different contexts, then all of a sudden you have no clue which one to follow. And this is the reason you have all these scholars debating and arguing with one another as far as which interpretation to take. Now consider one of the strongest hadith, that regarding the seven arf of the Quran. If you're wondering what is arf in the hadith means, don't worry, so are all the scholars who study this material. There's volumes and volumes written about what this word even means in the context. But even outside of that word, if you look, there's dozens of various narrations as far as how this was transmitted and what the story behind these supposed seven arf of the Quran are. So in one of the narrations, it reads, I have been sent Gabriel to a people who are unlettered, among whom are old women, old men, boys and girls, and men who have never read a book. He replied, the Quran Muhammad has been sent down in seven modes, arf. So in this supposed hadith, the Prophet received this Quran in seven arf, and they translated it as modes. In another hadith, it says that the Prophet is quoted as saying that Gabriel and Michael came to him, and when Gabriel had sat down at his right and Michael at his left, Gabriel told him to recite the Quran in one arf, and Michael told him to ask for more, till he reached seven arf, each arf being sufficiently health-giving. So what am I to believe? Firstly, what is the meaning of arf in the context of these narrations? Two, which narration is the actual correct one? And there's more. It says, I asked to recite the Quran and I was asked in one mode or two modes. And this word mode is basically arf in the Arabic. The angel that accompanied me said, say it in two modes. I said, in two modes. I asked again, in two modes or three modes? The matter reached up to seven modes. He then said, each mode is sufficiently health-giving. Whether you utter all the hearing and all-knowing or instead all-powerful and all-wise, this is valid until you finish the verse indicating punishment or mercy and finish the verse indicating mercy on punishment. And don't worry that this sounds like gobbledygook. Even to the scholars, they're trying to wrap their heads around what this even means. And if you look, they have numerous, numerous understandings as far as what the seven arf mean. They say it could mean seven ways of pronouncing a word, except there's more than seven ways and some words have less than seven ways. They say it's seven types of Quranic verses. So this means there's not one Quran, there's seven Qurans that they denote a large number, that it's not necessarily seven. Seven is just used arbitrarily to signify a large number, that there could be many, many, many more modes of the Quran, that there are seven dialects of Arabic spoken at that time, and these seven modes reference the seven dialects, except there's more than seven. Uh, some other scholars claim that, no, there's seven types of differences in the Quranic readings. So they believe that in, you can swap out words for synonyms, that there's different ways that this could be read. And again, this contradicts the whole concept that there's a single Quran, that the seven arif refer to seven recitals. Except the problem there is these various recitals came after the prophet's death. So how that can't be. But again, you see the level of confusion, the inconsistency this causes. You know, this is the people who uphold this believe that there is not one Quran, but there's seven Qurans, that the words in the Quran are ambiguous and subject to change, that you can arbitrarily pick synonyms and fill them in for words within the Quran. 
All this shows that they think there is no one Quran. There's multiple Qurans, that there's variations within the Quran, that God did not preserve this book because they don't even understand what this book is. Ironically, if we consult the Quran, we see that the word arf means distortions. So it's not surprising that this word that they're struggling to understand, that they're using these sources as a source beside the Quran, is causing them so much distortion to even comprehending what is the Quran. And this is the irony of upholding any other hadith as a source of law next to that of the Quran. That when one does this, it inevitably destroys their entire understanding of what the Quran even is. Individuals who ascribe to upholding hadith besides the Quran struggle to define what do they mean by Quran. This is due to their erroneous understanding that the verses of the Quran were abrogated or forgotten. And once you adopt that understanding that there are sources of law outside of the Quran, that God's words are not complete, that certain verses can be negated, you're outside of God's grace from being able to understand this Quran. In a famous hadith attributed to the companion Omar, it reads, Nobody should say that he has committed the whole Quran to memory, for he does not know what is the whole Quran, since much of the Quran has been eliminated. Rather, he should say that he has memorized what is found of it. This is Pandora's box that people are welcome to. If they choose to not accept that the Quran is complete, it's fully detailed, it should be our only source of religious law, that any understanding we have should not contradict the verses of God in the Quran, that this concept of some verses abrogating other verses or some hadith abrogating that of the verses of the Quran is completely a satanic trap and one of the biggest cons that Satan has deployed on the Muslim masses. My apologies for going a little longer than normal, but God willing, we're going to stop here. If you guys want to get in touch, please join us on our Discord server. The invite link is below. If you want to follow along the verses of the uh, the Quran, you can go to the QuranCityApp.com website on the iOS App Store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranCityApp.com website. If you want notes for today's discussion, along with all the references from the Hadith and the supposed abrogated verses, you can go to crontalkblog.com. And if you want more general information, you can hit up chroniclabs.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.